Good evening. I want to share with you tonight a very interesting story that takes us back to the 18th century, to the Jewish capital of Lithuania, Vilna, which was known as Yerushalayim Delita, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. There was a debate that broke out between the group of Jews known as Kroyim, Karaites, and traditionally observant Jews. The Karaites were a sect that did not believe in the rabbinic tradition of Judaism. They did not accept what we call Torah Shabal Peh, the oral tradition articulated in the Mishnah and the Talmud and the Midrash and so forth. They remained loyal only to biblical Judaism. And there was once a debate between the Karaites and their brethren, the traditionally observant halachic Jews. The famous Gaon of Vilna, Rabbi Eliyahu, Rabbi Eliyahu Kramer, his last name was Kramer, suggested that the halachic community send Rabbi Yehuda Leib Maitus, who was a student of the Vilna Gaon. He came from the city of Pinsk to represent the Jews the halachic Jews, in their debate against the Karaites. Now, one of the first issues that the Karaites brought up in the debate was the fact that the Chachamim, the sages, throughout the Mishnah and the Talmud and throughout the halachic literature, refer to the bill of divorce between a man and a woman as a get. Gimel tes, a get. This to them was proof that the rabbis disassociated themselves from the Bible. In fact, they invented a new Judaism in lieu of biblical Judaism. Why? Why did the sages, the Karite representative asked, have to invent a new name for a bill of divorce? The Torah gives it a name. In Deuteronomy, in the portion of Kisetzi, the Torah calls it Sefer Chrysos. The Torah says that if a couple is getting divorced, the husband should give to the wife a Sefer Chrysos, a book which severs them, a book which cuts them off, which separates them, and thus the marriage is annulled. Yet the sages were compelled to change the name, and instead of calling it a Sefer Chrysos, the new name is Get, Gimeltes. This proved, the Karait representative said, that the sages disassociated themselves from biblical Judaism. Rabbi Yehuda Leib Maitis, who was a great scholar, immediately responded, and he quoted that famous tradition that is brought in halachic sources in the tractate of Gitin, the tractate of divorce, in the name of the Jerusalem Talmud. And you can open up source number one, because here we'll have the quote that he gave at that debate. Source number one, right below the video, you have a curriculum with the first source. Let me get it here. You. Source number one reads, Shilte Agibayrim Reish Gitin, 
This is in the commentary of the Shilte HaGeboyim, who writes a commentary on the Mordechai, one of the great Rishonim in Tractate Git in the beginning of the first chapter, Loshen Get Kamay Shamatzine Be Where does the term Get come from? The Jerusalem Talmud says, Efen Achas Bekroche Hayam, Vigite Shma, Omegareshes Kol Chavrisal. There's an animal that is situated in the cities near the ocean. Its name is Gita, and it expels all of its buddies, all of its friends. So here we see already that in nature there is an animal which acquired this name Gita. Hence, the sages use the name Get to describe a divorce in which the husband and the wife expel each other and they separate, they cut their life, they separate their lives from each other. They call it Get. Just like this animal which expels its friends is called Gita. I should just note that in our texts of the Jerusalem Talmud we don't have such a statement. But we do know that there are tractates of Talmud Yerushalmi that are missing. But it is quoted in Shilti HaGibayim from the Yerushalmi. He quotes it from others. It's quoted in Be'er Hetev in Shulchan Aruch Evan HaEzer Simen Kufchof in the beginning in the laws of divorce. So the Karite representative says... But why did the sages have to go to Krochei Hayam, to the cities near the ocean, and find an animal called Gita, and use that name to describe the divorce that the husband gives the wife in Judaism, when there's a name clearly in the Torah, Sefer Christus, and yet they abandoned that name, and they invented a new name. In fact, in Talmud and in Mishnah, it's called Gitten, Tractate Gitten. So there's an animal called Gita, which means, it ex- which expels all of its friends. Why did they abandon the biblical name? The Karite representative wanted to know. And on this, Rabbi Yehuda Leib did not have a reply. He came back to the Vilna Gon, the story goes, and he reported about the debate and the fact that with this question, he was stumped. And the Vilna Gon told him and said, on the contrary, it's the name Get which demonstrates the brilliant depth that the Talmudic sages had in biblical language and in the Hebrew tongue. And it's that brilliance which is conveyed by the fact that they chose this word of two letters, get, to describe the divorce process between a husband and a wife. You see, the Vilna Gaon said, every single letter of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet from Aleph to Tav connects with every other letter Aleph and Tav make a word S Bays and Tav make up a word Bias, a home has in it a Bays and a Sof Gimel and Sof Gu'ulas is a biblical word, the redemption. Dalad and Sof, Delas, Ador, Hey and Sof, Haskes. And you can go through the whole alphabet, every single letter from the beginning, from the middle, from the end, all the 22 letters are synthesized. They are connected in some form or fashion. I did the first and the last. Let's do the first and the second. Aleph and Bays, do they ever come together? Of course, there's a word Av. Father is Aleph and Bez. There's a word Ba, 
He came. Be'ez and Aleph. Ba'ah, she came. There's a word, Be'er, a well. That's Be'ez, Aleph, Resh. So in the Tanakh, we have the Aleph coming together with the Be'ez. There's a word, Aveda, something that's lost, brings together an Aleph and a Be'ez. How about Be'ez and Gimel? Of course, Beged, a garment, brings together Be'ez, Gimel, and Dalad. Gever, a man, brings together Gimel and Be'ez. What about Gimel and Dalad? Geder, a fence, brings together Gimel and Dalad. Degel, a flag, we have together Dalad and Gimel. And so on and so forth. Take any two random letters in the alphabet, you can try it out. Take Dalad and Tess. That's a little uncommon. Nitzadok. Ma Nitzadok. How will we justify ourselves? The Dalad and the Tess came together in the word Nitzadok. How about Dalad and Yud? Yad, a hand, or die, enough. Dalad and Chaf, Kad, a barrel. Dalad and Mem, Madua, why? A biblical word. Mem and Dalad come together. There is not one word in the Tanakh, not one letter in the Hebrew alphabet, I'm sorry, which does not come together with another letter. Now you may ask me, there is no word in the Tanakh which brings together the Hebrew letters Zion, Samach, and Tzadik. You will not find a word bringing together these three letters. But the Zion, Samach, and Tzadik are connected in another way. Namely, there is something known as Hei Moitzoi Sapeh. There are five sources for all of the 22 letters of the alphabet. Zion, Samach, Shin, Resh, Tzadik are rooted in the teeth. Zion, Samach, Shin, Resh, Tzadik. You close your teeth, bite the teeth, to utter these letters. The five letters, Aleph, Ches, Hey, Ayin, are rooted in the gora, in the throat. Bez, Vav, Mem, Pei, in the lips. There are hey Mitzayisapeh, five different sources for letters. So Zion, Samach, Shin, Reish, Tzadik are from the Shinayim. They're from the teeth. So they come together. So the bottom line is, you will not find a single letter in the Hebrew alphabet which does not connect in one way or another with every single of the other 21 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Either they come together in a word, either they come together in a shayrish, which means in the roots of words. Every word has a shayrish, a grammatical root. You'll find the letters coming together in a single root, or you'll find them being integrated in the source from where they come from the mouth of the person. But there will be some way in which every letter comes together with every other cell letter. The Zion and the Samach, the Yud and the Chaf, the Laman and the Aleph, take any two letters, they will come together in one form or fashion. There is an exception. And the exception is two single letters in the alphabet, which you will never find under the same roof. These two letters will never come together. You will never find them in a single word. They will never come together in a single word. Nor will you ever find them 
coming together in a single shayrish, in a single root of a word. Nor will you ever find them coming together in the place of the mouth. These two letters are forever, eternally separated in the Lushan Kodesh in the Hebrew language. Which two letters? You guessed. Gimel and Tess. You could read through the whole Bible. You will find no word that brings Gimel and Tess together. No root in the Hebrew language which brings them together. And they're not associated with the same source in the mouth. Gimel and Tess are hence the letters of divorce. That's why the Vilna Gaon said, the sages decided to call a divorce a get. What does a divorce accomplish? It painfully and sadly separates a marriage, a union between a husband and a wife, which is not just a technical, physical, legal union. It's legal, it's technical, it's physical, it's also spiritual. It's soulful. And that union is separated. And it's an eternal separation. The two are now separated. They're not connected to each other. Even if they may have some things connecting them, especially if they have children. But as far as a husband and a wife, they're completely severed from each other. Which two letters do they choose? Gimel and Tess come together to make a divorce. These two letters that are separated and never come together define hence the get, the divorce. So it's precisely their use of this word, the Vilna Gaon said, that demonstrated their unique understanding of the structure of the Hebrew tongue, of the biblical language, of Lashon HaKodesh. I think you can add to something interesting. If you take a look, bring up source number two, Taisvis writes in the beginning of Masech Gitten. The reason is the custom to have 12 lines in a document of divorce, a Jewish document of divorce, Rabbi Tam said, because the word get is the numerology of 12. Gimel is 3, and Tess is 9, so it's 12. Now the obvious question is, the name get is an invented name. So the rabbis call it a get, and then based on their name, they say, now we need 12 lines because the name is get. That doesn't make sense. It's not like the Bible calls it a get, so we say, since get is 12, therefore you have to have 12 lines. It's a rabbinic name. And the rabbinic name is a novel name. It's not rooted, essentially, in the biblical literature. So why, just because they're naming it get, like the Yerushalmi says, because there's an animal called Gita, so that's why they should make a law that you need 12 lines, because in the name Get, you have the number 12. What's the logical connection? Taisus brings a second reason, which makes sense. What's the second reason? The Torah calls it Sefer Christus, a book of divorce. So it compares it to a Sefer Torah, a book scroll. The Sefer Torah we know between every Chumash, there is four empty lines separating one book from another book. Between Bereshus and Shemais, between Shemais and Vayikra, between Vayikra and Midbar. Three times four is twelve. Since the Get, the Sefer, is called a Sefer, it's like a Sefer Torah, so we have twelve lines. Taisva says you don't count the lines between Bamidbar and Dvarim, since Dvarim, the book of Deuteronomy, is only a repetition of the previous books, which is why it's called Mishnah Torah. 
I understand this. The Torah calls it Sefer Christus, so we compare it to a Sefer Torah, which has four blank lines between one book and another book. But just because the name Get, which is a random name because of an animal that exists in Kroche Ayam in the cities near the ocean called Gita, should we make a new halacha, a new law that you need 12 lines? What's the logic? But of course, the answer could be because the very letters, Gimel Tess, represent separation. It's not just a random name. The very letters Gimel and Tess, which are three and nine, those are the letters for some reason that the creator of the Hebrew tongue felt embody separation. The very letters represent separation and that's why they never come together. Gimel and Tess somehow are allergic to each other. They represent separation from each other and hence the very letters are connected to the concept and since the letters make up the number 12, therefore we have 12 lines in a get. One of the students, back to the story, one of the students of the Vilna Gaon who was present, so the story goes, listened to the novel insight that his teacher just presented. And he said that based on this, we can understand another very interesting phenomenon. And that is, in the portion of Pinchas, we have the commandment to offer what's known as the carbon tamid. The carbon tamid, the offering of the tamid, tamid means constant, perpetual, was a daily offering offered in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, and in the holy temple in Jerusalem. One sheep in the morning, and one sheep in the afternoon. Every single day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, it's the constant, perpetual offering that the Jewish people offer to God, a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the afternoon. The source of this mitzvah is in the portion of Pinchas. And you have it in source number three. Bring up source number three. You have the eight verses and he goes through the whole source now take a look leave source number 3 open and take a look and the student says read through these 8 verses and you'll find every letter of the Hebrew alphabet is here the Aleph and the Beis and the Gimel the Dalet the Hei Vav I'm sorry the Aleph the Beis the Dalet every letter of the Hebrew alphabet in these 8 verses you could look at it yourself it's on your screen, it's in your curriculum. You'll find every letter of the Hebrew alphabet besides two letters. Which two letters are gone, are absent, mysteriously. You got it. The Gimel and the Tess are not present in this portion. Why? Why, did the, why were the Gimel and Tess deprived from making their way into the eight verses of Parshas HaTamit? The answer is, open up source number four. The Gemara says in Mesech Gitin of Beis, and in fact, this is the conclusion of the whole tractate of divorce of Gitin. Rebbe Lezer said, "Amar Rebbe Lezer, Someone who divorces his first wife, even the altar sheds tears on him. The altar weeps for the tragedy of this divorce of a husband and a wife who are the first couple or first marriage. The altar cries." You know, they tell the anecdote about the woman who comes to the rabbi and she says, Rabbi, I need a divorce. You need to make sure my husband gives me a divorce. So the rabbi says, how long have you been married? She says, we've been married for 45 years. The rabbi says, 45 years married and now you're going to get a divorce? 
Do you know what the Talmud says? That if you divorce your first wife, the altar is also weeping. So she says, Rebbe, for five from years, I've been crying. For four and a half decades, I was crying. Now let the altar weep a little bit. Now what do we see from here? That from all of the things through which we choose to identify the pain of a divorce, we identify the altar. Somehow the mezbeach, the altar, upon which the sacrifices were brought, that's what weeps when a divorce happens. Why was the mezbeach chosen? Why was the altar chosen? At the surface you might say, the altar is the place of sacrifice. The altar is the place where the Jewish people brought their sacrifices day in and day out. The altar sees and saw the value of sacrifice. The value of sacrificing something of yourself for the sake of a higher truth, a higher cause, for the sake of your higher power of your God. In so many cases a couple gets divorced because they are unable, unwilling, not ready to make sacrifices. Every marriage requires compromise, consideration of the other person, sacrifices of your own ego, of your own priorities, of your own schedules, habits, instincts, cravings. When the altar sees a couple which is failing, it's not ready to sacrifice, believing that they'll live much better lives if they're self-contained, the altar weeps. On a deeper level, the altar was the place where the Jewish people offered their sacrifices to God, which represented the relationship, the marriage, the bond between humanity and the Creator, between the Jewish people and God. And therefore the altar could not tolerate the divorce. So the student of the Vilna Gaon says, that's why in this portion you don't have Gimel Tess. This is the portion of the Talmud, the daily offering on the altar. The altar cries when a husband and a wife get divorced because the altar cannot tolerate the Gimel Tess. And therefore this portion expelled the Gimel and the Tess. All the other letters are welcome in Parshas Atomid and Pinchas. But the Gimel and the Tess are excluded. It doesn't tolerate divorce. Now here the obvious question is, so many portions in the Bible deal with sacrifices and offerings and altars. The altar is the first time discussed in Truma and in Tetzava, in the book of Leviticus, different parts of Bamidbar. Why is it only in Pinchas, in the Parshas HaTomid, in the Tomid offering, where we suddenly have the symbol that the altar cannot tolerate divorce. Gimel test. Why from all of the portions dealing with sacrifices, and from all of the portions dealing with the altars in the temple, the one that the Torah chooses to highlight and say, here you will not have the Gimel and the test representing divorce, it's the portion of Pinchas. Why this one? Perhaps one possible interpretation may be based on an insight I had the privilege of hearing from the Lubavitcher Rebbe at a public gathering, Yudbeis Tammuz Tovshin Memdalad, the 12th of Tammuz, 1984, 
which was the portion of Pinchas. The fourth day, the fourth portion, Revi of Pinchas, dealing with the carbon Talmud. And the Rebbe then explained the dynamics of the Talmud offering as they apply to our lives timelessly. As the Torah emphasizes in source number three, this is an Oila Tamid. There were two types of sacrifices that were brought in the sanctuary and the temple. One was known as a carbon Oila, which had a different qualification. Most offerings that were sacrificed, part of the flesh of the animal or the grain, the meal that was offered, it wasn't only animals, there were also other offerings. There were birds, and there were grain offerings from wheat meal, wheat flour, or barley. Most of them, a part of it, was burnt on the altar. Another part was eaten by the Kohanim, by the priests, and very often another part was eaten by the Bailim, by the people who sacrificed the offering. So they were split up. Part went on the altar, Part went to the Kohanim, part went to the Masters. The question was, which part, who exactly gets it, how long they can eat it for, where they eat it for. But the common denominator of most sacrifices is, uh, is that they're split between different parties. Then there was a sacrifice called the carbon Oila. The Oila was unique that the entire offering was consumed in the flames of the altar. No part of it was eaten or consumed not by the Kohanim, not by the priests, not by the Israelites who offered it. It was a complete dedication to God, completely offered on the altar. This is called the carbon Oila. Now the carbon Tamid, the perpetual daily offering in the morning and the afternoon, a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the afternoon, as the Torah clearly says in Pinchas, was Oila Tamid, it was a carbon Oila, it was an offering that was completely consumed on the altar. What does this represent? There are two types of relationships that we can have with God. One is a relationship in which I serve God. But part of my service is the personal benefit that I get from it. Maybe I serve Him because I want the reward. Maybe I serve Him because I'm scared of the punishment. Maybe I serve Him because I enjoy it. I enjoy the meaning, the depth, the fulfillment. It's an important relationship. But this is a relationship that's primarily based on myself. Since I want the benefits that I will gain from connecting to you, therefore I connect to you. So even though I'm connecting to you and I'm dedicating myself to you and I'm giving you of my time and my energy and my resources, but I am also, I have a stake in it. And I may have even the greater stake in it because I'm doing it because of myself. I want the reward. I'm fearful of the consequences. I want the joy. I want to appreciate the benefits of it. And that's the primary motivation. So who am I serving? I'm serving you. But at the core of my service to you is the service to myself. They tell the story about Rabbi Saul Salanter. Rabbi Saul Salanter was the founder of the Musser movement. Rabbi Yisrael Lipkin. And they say that he once saw a Jew eating chicken very enthusiastically. So he asked him, why are you so passionate about the chicken? And the Jew tells him, Rebbe, I love the chicken. He says, really, you love the chicken? And the Jew says, absolutely, yes, I love this chicken. He says, wow, 
it's interesting to see how you treat things you love. You love this chicken, so you had it slaughtered, its neck sliced, its blood spilled, its feathers plucked, its flesh cut into pieces, and then satayed or broiled or cooked, and what's left of it converted into your blood circulation. Is this how you treat all the people you love? You have them killed and then plucked and then you eat them up? You don't love the chicken. You love yourself. You love your taste buds. You love your abdomen. The chicken happens to satisfy your stomach and your taste buds. So therefore you're eating the chicken. But the love here is not to the chicken. The love is to yourself. Sometimes I say, I love you. What do I mean by I love you? Do I love you or do I love me? And it's just by loving you, my life is enhanced. So when I say I love you, essentially, it's part of my self-love. I need you. You help my life. You glorify my life. You enhance my life physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually, whatever it is. But at the core of my love to you is my self-consciousness. In our relationship with God, there's also these two things. I offer an offering to God, but I get much in return. That's one type of relationship. Then there's the carbon oila. The carbon oila relationship is that the whole sacrifice is consumed by the altar. That represents a Jew who is committed to God, not because of his personal benefit. It's not that I am driven for me to have something better. I'm rather committed to you because of you. It's not on my terms, it's on your terms. And that's what the carbon tumid represents. That every day, the Jew offered a type of offering in which he asked not what God can do for him, he asked what he can do for God, what he can do for truth. It's not about enhancing myself and my life, and my ego, on any level, on a primitive level, or on a more sophisticated level, but at the core is me. Rather, I ask, what can I do to serve truth? What can I do to be here for God? Who created the world from something to nothing, from nothing to something. From so- nothingness to somethingness. Ex nihilo in the old Latin term, yesh mei That's a different question. Lest you think, That this relationship you can only have in the morning, in times of light, in times of brightness, in times of prosperity, when you're very comfortable, now you could afford to say, ask not what he or she can do for you, ask what you can do for him or her. Comes the Torah and says, Every day in the morning as well as in the evening. When the sun rises and when the sun is about to set. Wherever we are in our life. Whatever day I'm having, whatever state of consciousness I'm in. I'm capable of experiencing this type of relationship. To ask not what you can do for me, but what I can do for you. And just as this is true concerning the Jew's relationship with God, that at the core of the Jewish experience is that when I wake up in the morning, 
I ask what I can do for you. And when about to retire, I ask what I can do for you. It's also true in human relationships, because as we know, human relationships mirror and reflect, and they ought to mirror and reflect, a relationship between the Jew and God. There are two types of love, there are two types of relationships. One relationship is, I love you because you're beautiful. So who do I really love? I love myself, and I enjoy your beauty, whatever type of beauty it is. And therefore I love you because your beauty gives me so much. And then there's a different type of love. You're beautiful because I love you. I love you. I'm here for you. And since I'm here for you, you become beautiful. That's a different type of relationship. And that's represented in the carbon oila. That's a relationship that withstands all temperaments, it withstands all fluctuations, it withstands all different transitions in life. It's true in the morning and it's true in the evening when the sun rises and when the sun sets in the roller coaster of life when we're going up and when we're going down. If the relationship is based on my benefits continuously, then it's temperamental, then it's conditional, then it's circumstantial. And if I find somebody else who can offer more of these things, at least in my perception, I can easily abandon you for a new person. But if the relationship is based on you, I commit myself to you. I want to be here for you. It's about you, not about me. Then in the morning and in the evening, it will have equal power when I'm in an upper and when I'm experiencing a downer. When I'm in a moment of exhilaration and when I'm in a moment of difficulty and challenge. This was the secret of Judaism. The carbon tumid, the sheep in the morning. And therefore through very different circumstances, through thick and thin, they had a relationship with God. Because it was about God. And it's this type of relationship that guarantees eternity. That there's no separation. And that's why it's in the Tamid offering that there's no Gimel and Tess. From all the sacrifices, it's only in this sacrifice, in this offering, in which the animal becomes completely consumed on the altar, representing that I'm completely involved in the relationship. It's not about me and my ego and what I'm going to benefit. No part of it comes back to me. It's that I ask not what you can do for me, I ask what I can do for you. It's that type of relationship, the carbon tumid, which avoids the gimel and the tests and guarantees a permanent and meaningful union. It is true that there are times, I should emphasize this, I know there are people watching and listening who know this from their personal lives, that a divorce saves lives. Sometimes there's no other option. Sometimes there's horrible abuse and dysfunction to the point that the marriage cannot be saved, which is why the Torah gives us the option of divorce. Sometimes there's no other way out, despite the pain, despite the tragedy. And if that's what the reality demands, then that's sometimes the right thing, because some divorces have saved couples and have saved children. But as we know, and I'm not, I'm not addressing those, and the Torah sanctions those, and the Torah allows it, and sometimes it's the right and moral divine thing to do. But very often that's not the case. Probably in most cases it's not the case. And here the Torah says, what's the way of avoiding it that you have to have in your relationship at least the element of the carbon tumid to be able to ask not 
always what you can do for me, but what can I do for you? How can I be here for you based on your needs, your desires, your personality, your conviction, and your heart and soul? Have a wonderful night. My dear friends, as we continue to grow, enhance the yeshiva.net, I want to thank you all for all of your contributions, even if it's in a small amount. And I want to ask you, we want to continue this, and we want to continue growing with more teachers, more subjects, more classes. If you could please contribute even a smaller amount to help us out, you can go onto the website, theyeshiva.net slash donate. You can also download our e-charity box, a special e-charity box on the website, which allows you to give even a few dollars or cents for charity at any given day, whenever you're inspired, on your iPod, on your laptop, on your desktop, as you'll see all the information. Please help us continue our work, even with a minimal amount. Thank you so much. God bless you. Good night.